And uh, I'll begin by saying Merry Christmas. Thank you. For those of you who got a lump in your throat right now, you still got a week and almost a half. It's okay. No worries. I just wanted to get into the spirit a little bit. And the spirit of Christmas, uh, you know, if we sort of did a little survey here about our adult life, I'll bet you most of our adult Christmases would be, you know, there'd be a, uh, a lot of differences, and it depends on what we've experienced in our adult years and what we remember and all that kind of thing. But if we took a survey of our childhood, I'll bet you most of us would be similar, at least in this way. It would be about the waiting you're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Christmas to get here, right? And in, in fact, let's do a little survey of how much you waited and how much you kind of violated the waiting thing. Um, how many of you search for your Christmas presents? Just give me your hand, okay? All right, the rest of you are liars. Okay, so how many of you found your Christmas presents? Yeah, okay, here. <laughs> here's where it starts to get nasty. How many of you took them out and played with them? Okay. <laughs> How many of you took them out and played with them and broke them? I guess I'm the only one. So you got about six or seven. I had this suspicion that I was getting something really cool, and I found, this was when it was still PC to do this, and it was still okay by OSHA standards to do this. My parents got me this machine gun that actually shot little sparks out the front of it. Catch the Christmas tree on fire kind of thing. Anyway, I found this thing, and I broke the tip off of it. Tried to put it back together, tried to glue it. It was awkward. It was not a good Christmas for me. So uh, that was, though, the expression of the waiting, the waiting and the waiting. And we, that's really a part of what Christmas is. In fact, here's the interesting thing. It's not just about being a kid in Christmas and waiting and waiting and waiting. It's not just about the slowness of Christmas getting here as a kid. The actual Christmas story, or what I like to say, the narrative of what actually happened, because when we think of story, we think of Grimm's fairy tales. We don't think of something that actually happened. But the story that actually happened, there's this large, large element of waiting. It's a part of the story, and it answers some really big questions in our lives. Because the thing is, is that I want to introduce you to a couple who had waited and waited and waited. Their names are Zachariah and Elizabeth. And it's in Luke chapter 1. Luke picks these people to start his Christmas story for a very specific reason, because people had been waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah for not 1,000 years, for 2,000 years that God had promised to send at that time 2,000 years, which is interesting, isn't it? Because before Jesus ascended, what did he do? He promised that he was coming back. 2,000 years ago. And in our time, it's kind of hard to understand this waiting thing because we live in the 21st century where it's almost morally wrong to make people wait. We call it bad customer service, right? In a credit card instant gratification society, waiting is just bad. But waiting, or another way to say it in the original language, is hoping not wishing. Hoping is waiting. It's a part of the story of Jesus coming to earth. And it says something to those moments that if we're all honest, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one. Those of us who are Jesus followers, those of us who are Christians, it's healthy from time to time to admit we've even had the question that goes something like this as we drive away from church. Why am I doing this? Why am I serving? Why am I giving? Why am I still believing? 
Why am I keeping my integrity and following the way of Jesus, which is a way of, another way of saying living the holiness that God asked me to live, and my job? When other people are getting promoted and I'm not, and they're not living that way, when other people at school are making fun of me for not cheating on the test or not sleeping around or whatever it is, why am I actually doing this? Ever had that question? I mean, if we're honest, I think all of us have had some time, it's like, man, I'm getting tired of waiting. And 99 and 9 tenths of the people who were alive when Jesus came to the earth in that first Christmas, they were getting tired of waiting for God to do something. In fact, that's really, as you crack the gospel of Luke, that's really how the whole story begins. He tells us the earliest story before the story. The conversation before the conversation. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1 of the book of Luke. It says, In the time of Herod the king of Judea, just in case you're wondering, that's baby-killing Herod, of Matthew chapter 2. They're still digging up his stuff. They just dug up another one's gold rings not too long ago. King of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. Okay, so here's what Luke wants you to know. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah were PKs, priest kids. And I can tell you, Sharon and I have thanked the Lord over and over and over again that our PKs turned out pretty good. Because the reputation for PKs is not to turn out pretty good. I mean, I sat dorm at a Christian college for a while, and I got scared, and so we prayed, and we prayed, and we prayed. And here's the thing. The reason that that happens to PKs so often is because they get so close to religion so constantly, it's kind of like, really? I haven't seen anything lately, and kind of go off. And that's not what happened with Zachariah and Elizabeth, and that's why they're unusual, and that's why Luke wants us to know that. So they were descendants of the priestly line. So grandfather, father, everybody down the line were priests. Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God and observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So two things. Number one, they uh, both, if you were to look at them in Luke's eyes, they were living, they're doing it right. They're living it right. And in fact, in God's eyes, if you looked at them, you have to say in his eyes, they're doing it right. They're, they're, they're living it right. In fact, they're keeping the commands the Old Testament stuff that most of us don't even want to look at. We get kind of bored with it. They were living it to the point that if you sent a private investigator to their house, there would be nothing to find. They were blameless. They were living it that way. So that's the kind of people these are. But with all of this faithfulness and all of this believing, see, they were believing this promise from 2,000 years ago that God would send a Messiah. And they were living it. They were believing it. It could be any day now. That's kind of how they were waiting. And kind of how they were hoping. But in spite of that, verse 7, they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Okay, so in our 21st century mindset, instant gratification and so forth and so on, don't make me wait. You're, you're kind of tempted to look at God and say, God, come on. Here's people who are faithful to you. Let me, let me get this straight. Not only have they been serving you faithfully, not only have they been very attentive to you, and they're in the priestly line, so they're doing the work of the Lord and all that kind of stuff, and yet they don't have any kids? The one thing that everybody thought was the main blessing of God in people's lives in those days 
You haven't blessed them with that? Because here's the thing. Luke kind of alludes to it here. In those days, it wasn't right, it wasn't wrong, but their medical understanding was messed up, and they blamed the woman all the time when that happened. And here's the thing, I don't want to be insensitive, please. As, as hard as it is to be, uh, not be able to have kids for, for however long it is, okay, as hard as it is today, and it is horribly hard, I, I don't want to take away from that at all, but you can multiply that by two to three times at least. Because in this culture, they blamed the woman, and then they blamed their, their faith in God. Not just the woman, but both of them. When people saw them walking down the street, they go, well, God, does, must, he must be really ticked at them. That's how they did it. And that was the stigma that was hanging over their, their backs and hanging on their heads all their married life. And now they were very, very old. <laughs> it was too late for them. It was too far beyond them at this point. You see... What God was doing in their lives was something that, that you just wouldn't expect, right? I mean, because here's a faithful couple. At least bless them with a child. If the Messiah is not going to come, please do that. You see, they were living in a time when many, many people were starting to doubt the promises. They were starting to doubt the prophecies. Remember this slide from last week? We talked about how throughout the empire, people were starting to doubt their spiritual beliefs. The Greco-Roman gods were losing their grip. And the reason they were losing their grip, of course, is because they were whimsical, stupid, and silly little gods that somebody made up. They weren't even real. So you can kind of make sense out of that. But on the eastern, shore, eastern edge of the empire, the Jewish place, the, the, the place that some Caesar named Palestine, people were starting to disbelieve that too. And the, the messiahs would come and go because there were all these wannabe messiahs and they'd rise up and the Romans would smash them down, and a new one would rise up and smash them down. It's kind of like doing the same thing over and over again, get the same result. That was just happening over and over again because people were getting impatient, and they were stopping to believe that God was going to do anything, so they're going to take matters into their own hands. But not Zechariah and Elizabeth, in spite of all that they were going through. See, let me give you just a little bit of an Old Testament survey here of how, what led up to this, or Old Testament uh, overview real quick. The promise that everybody was believing in the time of, uh, when Jesus came to earth, when, when Zechariah and Elizabeth were a part of this story, uh, is from Genesis chapter 12. And here it is. It's to a guy named Abraham. And here's what God says to Abraham. I will make you a great nation. Okay, that happened. Little dinky little nation, Israel, uh, became a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. That happened. Because most of us who walk in here today, we know the name Abraham, right? And you will be a, a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you. Okay, a lot of that happened. But most of how that happened is after the time of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth, we're still trying to figure that one out, and will be blessed through you. Here's the problem with that. At this point in the history of the country of Israel or Palestine or whatever you want to call it, the Jewish people, it was impossible for God to bless the whole world through them. They had no clout. They had no leverage. They had nothing. And here's kind of how it all, all went together. Uh, you know, in the beginning with Abraham, he had a son, Isaac, and then he had a son, Jacob. And Jacob uh, his, had 12 sons, and they all wound up in Egypt 
And the 12 tribes of Israel came there, and they did become a great nation. Then they trot out of of Egypt in in the Exodus. We know about that. They come into their own land, and they become a country, and they become a nation. And and pretty soon, after hundreds of years, these two guys show up, David and his son Solomon, and this this becomes a world player. This becomes a, a place that has more territory, more wealth than just about anybody else around them. But here's the problem. God didn't send the Messiah during that time. If he was going to leverage any time, that would have been the perfect time. And in Zechariah and Elizabeth's time, they're looking back on that at about 900 years ago, and they're thinking, God, why didn't you do then? You know, where's the new David? What's what's the deal with this? What's going on? And so they're wondering about that. And not only that, after the time of Solomon... The nation broke up. It split in half, and and it split into all these factions, and there was this war and that war, and and then all of a sudden, nations started conquering them in the next hundreds of years. They got taken into exile. I mean, the Syrians hit them, and then the Persians hit them, and the Babylonians hit them, and the Greeks hit them, and then the Romans wipe in there, and they go into exile for a while. They've got no international clout. They've got no army, and get this, 25 times the territory of this nation changes hands in those hundred years between David and Zechariah and Elizabeth. 25 times. So how are we supposed to believe this promise that you gave 2,000 years ago? Why doesn't God act? In fact, it gets worse than that. There was something that happened in the early days of the lives of Zechariah and Elizabeth. It was in 63 BC. This is not in the Bible, but it is in history. A Roman general, famous Roman general named Pompey, they named that city of Pompey after, we all know what happened to that, but that's nothing connected to him, I'm sure. But Pompey came in, put siege on Jerusalem in 63 BC and conquered the city, but that's not all he did. He walked into the city, strutted right into the temple, and he didn't stop at the door. He went right in. He didn't stop at the door to the, the curtain to the Holy of Holies. He went right in, looked around, and then walked out. And here's the problem. The problem is, is the Jewish people believed that you could only go in there if you were invited, and the only people that were invited was a priest, and that only happened once a year to walk into the Holy and Holies. And if you walked in there uninvited and unworthy, God would strike you dead. But Pompey walked out, and he was very much alive. So what are they supposed to do with that? God had promised, this is the Holy of Holies, this is the place. And so the word went out around the Roman Empire from Jerusalem beyond. Hey, guess what? The God of the Romans, Jupiter, he's more powerful than the God of the Jews. So they're living with this all their lives. And, and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they grow up and they get married. And they're both from the priestly class. They're both PKs. And they're living with this question mark hanging on their back of why doesn't God act? Because when they were little children, surely their fathers who were priests came home, tore their robes and mourned because how could this pagan, awful general walk right into the Holy of Holies, desecrate it, and then still walk out? How in the world could that happen? And so a lot of people, quite frankly, just like we said a minute ago, the Jewish people, a lot of them had given up. They, they gave over their faith and entered the Roman culture and accepted all the ways of the Roman culture and literally became secularized in that sense. They rejected the faith of the God of the, their Bible, of the scriptures of the Old Testament, and they'd moved out. In fact, whole, whole portions of the priesthood moved out. And it just became political entity, like the Sadducees. 
They didn't believe at all that, you know, all this stuff about resurrection and that God was actually there and that God was actually up to something. They were just doing it for the politics of the thing. So there were a large number of people who had abandoned the faith altogether because they felt God had abandoned them. But not everybody. Not Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah's name that means uh, God remembers, Yahweh remembers, remembers his promises. Or Elizabeth, whose name means God fully satisfies. God will satisfy the prophecies. He will satisfy the promises. He'll satisfy the hearts of the people who are longing for him to send help. They actually believed it. They actually lived it. And it's because of that example that Luke picks them to start the story because the point of the whole Christmas event is that God is trying to say, the answer to your question is, will I show up? The answer is absolutely yes in your life. And that's important to us, isn't it? It's important because all of us go through seasons, go through moments, go through times in life and in our relationships where maybe we begin to ask, uh, God, I've been praying for this for a long time. Or we're claiming a scripture verse, a promise that he made, because there's like you know, hundreds and hundreds of promises in the scriptures. And we're claiming those promises, and we don't always see it right away. That's why this whole story is started with the faithfulness of people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. And look, look at what happens with them and how this whole thing works out. Look at, look at verse 8. It says, Once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, and he was chosen by lot, you know, throwing some dicey things, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all assembled worshipers were praying outside. So here's what happens. Once a year, they would throw these lots. They would trust God to be in the throwing of the lots. And they would pick one of the divisions. There were 23 divisions of priests. That's how, this is how rare this was for somebody to get picked for this. 23 divisions of priests, and they would cast the lots within that, um, that, that one particular vision, uh, division, and they would uh, pick one person to go in. And all the priests of that division would go up to the curtain of the Holy of Holies, and then they would back off, go out of the temple, and that one person, that one priest, would go into the Holy of Holies and offer incense and so forth and so on. And that's the thing that Zechariah got to do this particular year. That's the one thing that he had got, gotten to do. And, 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 you know, it must have been an amazing honor. It was also quite scary. Because, because they still believed that you would die if you were desecrating the Holy of Holies, in spite of Pompeii, they still had the tradition that they kept the tradition of putting bells in the bottom of the robe so they could hear people moving around in there. And they tied a rope to the guy's foot. So in case they had to pull the body out, they had, didn't have to go in there and make a second body to get him out, right? And so that, that's, that's the situation. That's the get up. That's how, how Zechariah is all, uh, you know, set up there. But he's in the Holy of Holies. He's in, uh, you know, offering this incense to God and prayers to God for the people of Israel. He's, he's, he's doing it by himself in there. And this, look, this is what happens. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled. 
and gripped with fear. And he gripped his chest. Oh, that's not what it says. I'll bet he was terrified. I mean, he's trying to do things right here. He's trying to live up to what he's supposed to live up to, right? And God sends an angel to speak to him. So he's, he's kind of wondering, what, what, what's going on? Where is this coming from? But look at this. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Why does he have to say that? Because angels, according to the Old Testament and the New Testament, angels are what? They're scary. You don't see an angel and think, oh, what a sweetness and light. Oh, I just want to give him a hug. You know, that's kind of the picture some people paint. A, you know, some people who've sold a lot of books or been on TV talk shows will just leave it alone, but their name might be Oprah kind of people. And so, but it's like, oh, I just want to hug him. No, 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 that's not a Bible angel. No, nah, mm-mm. You see one of these angels and you're under the table. You're scared. The reason they have to say every single time an angel shows up, says, Go ahead, don't be afraid. Is because angels are awesome creatures. They think we're really cool. They wish they could have our experience, according to the Bible, because they're looking to see what salvation is like. They just think it's amazing what God is doing. But they're amazing, utterly stunning creatures. And so when someone says, I saw an angel, I said, well, why don't you tell me more about that? I want to know more about that. <clears throat> and and uh, Zachariah sees an angel, and he's, he's just stricken with fear, is what, what this means, literally. And think about that. Zechariah was a good person. What if you and I were in there? I'll just leave that. But so Zacharias is afraid. Zechariah is afraid, and it says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your prayer has been answered. I mean, sometimes I pray prayers, God, would you just show up? Would you just show me clearly? You know, but I stop short, honestly. Okay, you can do this if you want to. It's nothing, this is not biblical. This is just me. I stop short of saying, God, would you give me a voice? Would you like explain it to me so clearly that, I, that you just show up so clearly that you just talk to me? Because you know what? If this is what it's like to see an angel, I'm not sure I could handle seeing God, right? I'd be under the bed. And so, but, but, but here's, the, the, the angel says, your prayers have been praying. So now we find out that they've been praying all along. They've been praying for a son, for a child since their 20s. And they kept praying into their 30s, which was highly unusual in those days. And just for fun, they kept praying in their 40s. And oh, well, we might as well pray in our 50s. But now it was too late. It was too late, too long that God would somehow bless them with this. But look what it says. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. John the who? The Baptist, right, or the baptizer, because he was a baptizer. He wasn't necessarily a Baptist. Could have been a Presbyterian. We have no idea what he was. But he was John the baptizer, because that's what he was going to do. That's what he's known for. In other words, in a moment, we're going to see that he was the fulfillment of a prophecy that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Everybody was believing that. Everybody was waiting for that. So he says, John. So here's what you're calling him. You're calling him John. Verse 14, and he will be a joy and a delight to you even in your old age, by the way. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. So this prophecy that this is all going to happen even before all of, even um, before he's born, this is who he is. 
Before he's even conceived, apparently, this is who he is. And he will bring back many people of Israel to the Lord their God. Why did he need to bring them back? Because many people had walked away. Many people had answered the question, what should I do? Why am I doing this with, I don't know, I'm out of here. I'm just going to stop. Or maybe they, 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 they had a form of civil religion like the Sadducees. I'll just give all the you know, accoutrements and pretend that I'm really a God follower, but behind the scene, I'm just, it's just a social thing. That was happening then. It was a post-Jewish world that had begun. Just like today, we're beginning a post-Christian world. Isn't that interesting? He says, this is the one who will bring back people to the Lord their God, the one who got them here all along. And look at the next verse. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. There it is. To turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And so you, you'll, be, you'll be honored, Zechariah. And to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zechariah is still kind of getting over his fear. We're going to have to forgive him here a little bit. Because he makes kind of a dumb statement. He asks a dumb question. Apparently there are dumb questions when it comes to talking to God's messenger. And, uh, but he does it in a very diplomatic way. Look at this. Verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. You notice that? Very diplomatic. I'm a geezer, and she might not be a spring chicken, right? So how in the world is this going to happen? Because we prayed in our 20s, our 30s, our 40s, our 50s, and now we just decided it's too late. So maybe you meant to go to the Zachariah down the street. You know, He's just trying to figure this thing out because this is blowing his mind. But look what the angel says. So the angel has to you know, kind of lay the law down, but, you know, I love the way the angel handles this. I love the way God handles this through the angel, because it's sort of like, yeah, Zachariah needs a little bit of a pat on the rear end. He needs a little bit of a, you know, hey, you know, you really shouldn't doubt God when his messenger's standing right in front of your face. So he needs a little bit of that, but he, you know, God doesn't want to do something that's debilitating the rest of his life, so watch what happens. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, which I think, there's a comma here, I think the angel said, I stand in the presence of God, and waited for Zachariah to respond. But apparently Zachariah didn't respond because he felt pretty stupid. And I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. Oh, God's got good news. You know, I, I, I need to know the good news, but here's what's going to happen. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day that this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true. I love this part. I love, I love, love this part. It's my favorite part of this story. This will come true at the appointed time. At the appointed time. And my guess is the angel could still read the mind of what was going on. And certainly God could. 
questions must have come in fast and furious. You mean God's got a calendar that this isn't appointed? This was on his calendar? Yep. You mean for 900 years since David and the 700 years since Isaiah, the God's been up to something? Even though he's been silent, he hasn't been inactive? That's exactly right. You mean there was a, a purpose for all of this waiting? That all of this time that God's been, been promising the Messiah, and when we thought, you know, the perfect time would have been David and Solomon and to set things right and get this over with, but now almost a thousand years later, we're still waiting for it, and, but God had a purpose in all that waiting? Uh-huh, he did. And just because God is silent doesn't mean he's doing nothing. That's exactly right, because it will all come true at the appointed time. That's true for your life. It's true for my life, apparently. At the appointed time when God says his calendar is right, and I can't tell you, and sometimes it's really frustrating that he doesn't have a calendar, to, you know, that he doesn't do it in June instead of waiting until December. I prayed to him on Sunday, and by Monday, nothing's happened. I mean, I, yeah, it can be frustrating, 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 because people go through seasons a lot longer things than that. But what this tells us is God, when he is silent, is not inactive. He is still up to something. He is still doing everything he promised that he would do. But look what's going on outside the temple. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting. So they're waiting in a different way. Waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. See, this wasn't supposed to take a long time. Get in there, burn the incense, and get out of there. So that we know you're okay. So keep jingling that bell. So, Zechariah, we got a song for you. Jingle bell, jingle bell, jingle all the way so that we don't yank you out of there at the wrong time. So I'm guessing when he's talking to Gabriel, he's just going jingle, 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 jingle. You know, do not take me out of here right now. And when he came out, he could not speak. Prophecy was true. He could not speak to them. They realized he had a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was completed, after he was done with his, you know, all the, the ceremonial things and cleansing and so forth that he had to do, he returned home to his dear wife Elizabeth. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And the Lord has done this for me. Notice she immediately realizes what happened. And she said, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And here's the amazing, amazing thing about this whole story. This is just the warm-up. It's just the pre-concert before the concert. It's the conversation before the conversation. It's just the evidence that God is up to something and God's going to make a move before he makes the move. And you see, this is how the story ends. This is how God begins to make his move. And it starts to look familiar in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel, same one, to Nazareth, to the town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Right? 
You see, here's what I think is going on in Luke's head as he's sitting around trying to figure out how to tell the epic, how to tell the narrative, how to tell the actual events. Yes, I'm, I'm hesitating to use the word story because just like the word waiting or the word hope, we use the word story as if, yeah, maybe it happened, maybe it won't happen. No, no, no. He knows this has happened, and he's trying to figure out how best to kind of lead into it. And so he picks this story because he wants to give us a sense of true anticipation. Because in those days, when people used the word hope, it was equal to the word wait. The same word was, can be translated either way in several words in the Hebrew and in the Greek language. The same word is used for hope and for waiting. But here's the thing. It's not just waiting like, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish. Uh-uh, that's how we use it. But in those days, waiting meant, if I said I'm waiting, it means I'm anticipating. And just like uh, Hebrews 11.6 says, that hope is the assurance of things that will be. So these people aren't saying I'm waiting. If they weren't waiting in that way, they wouldn't use the word. If they weren't hoping in that way, they wouldn't use the word. Because when they hoped, when they waited, they meant, it meant <clears throat> that they anticipate that God is going to do something very soon. It could be today. It could be any day. And these people had waited thousands of years. And 99%, nine-tenths of percent of them had never seen the fulfillment of it. But that's how God asked them to live in their moment, in their time. And he was doing all these other things in their lives through that waiting, through that hoping. You see, of all these words in the ancient Hebrew um, that mean hope or to wait, one of my favorites, because I think it, it summarizes this um, this emotionally powerful story so well, is the Hebrew word kavah. Kavah means to wait or to hope. But it's very graphic for the people who would hurt, who, you know, use that word and lived in those days. And even today, if you go to Israel and you talk about kavah, people know what you're talking about because the root of the word kavah is the word kav. And the word kav means a cord. And the reason the two words go together is this. It's like if you have a cord and you pull it tight, 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 and there's tension, just like there's tension in our lives so often, and there's wondering, and there's like there's wondering, and tension, how long can this go? And then the cord snaps and there's release. Ah, oh. That's kavah. The hope, the waiting is the kavah. In other words, what it's saying is, is you don't have to wait till everything breaks open, till God shows up, till everything, to have that release because God really is here. You can have the kavah no matter what time you're living in, no matter what is on God's calendar for today, you can have kavah. You can have the hope that is the waiting, that is the anticipation. You see, this is really, really important because you, where you and I live and work and, and, and breathe and go to Starbucks and all that kind of stuff, and Pete's and any other coffee shop you like. Where, <clears throat> when we, where we live, a lot of people hear what we believe and they go, you're just, you got to be making up that belief because you're just believing something that's unbelievable. But what they don't realize is, yeah, we are believing the unbelievably believable. Because nobody has all of the universe, nobody has all of time, nobody has every answer to every force in the world and every force in history and everything. Nobody's got that all on their head at the same time, nobody. And everybody's got to believe in something. And the question is, is it worth believing in the unbelievable, that it's just too amazing, 
that's got evidence that has happened here and here and here, is that really the smart way to go or is it to believe like in myself? Or to believe that, you know, if I get that, that really, really cool uh, car for Christmas, then my life will be happy. I mean, what is it that I'm believing in? Everybody believes in something, whether they believe in God or not. The problem is, if you don't believe in God, if you don't have something big enough to fill that gap, worthy enough of that belief, something happens in people's lives that fills it with all kinds of crazy, nutty stuff, right? So yeah, we believe the unbelievably believable. Because here's what the unbelievably believable does. That very unbelievability makes a compelling case for checking out the whole thing one more time. Doesn't it? When you realize really what happened then, and when you realize really what happens in our lives on a regular daily basis, and the peace that we get when we shouldn't have peace, and the hope that we have when we shouldn't have hope, and the waiting that, that results in that kind of assurance that God really is up to something, even though we don't know what and how, and that God is going to get us through, that changes everything. And so what this means is, is that this makes Zachariah and Elizabeth, that makes it our story, right? Because, to quote Elizabeth, we live in these times when God has shown up in our lives. And it was, it's hard to believe. And so it begins to answer the question, you know, what am I going to pass on to my kids? Am I going to pass on that kind of hope? Am I going to believe it that much? Am I going <clears> to... <throat> Am I going to keep believing? Am I going to keep serving? Am I going to keep giving? Or am I just going to keep it all for myself? Am I going to, am I, am I going to you know, keep living with integrity when I go to work? Am I, am I going to continue not cheating and not sleeping around when I go to college? I mean, it, it begins to answer the question. It says, yeah, that's what I, I want for my life. I want God's way in my life. I want him in my life. So it's not so silly after all, is it? I talked to somebody this week who had a really good definition of the eternal perspective. And this person had gone through some really incredibly horrible times just a couple of years ago. And we were talking about that time because I was there with them in that time. This person said to me something someone else had said to them at that time. That, In fact, the day that some of these horrible events happened. He said to me, this person looked at me and said, I'm not trying to be insensitive here, but just remember what you're experiencing right now is the worst hell that you will ever experience as a Christian. Because as Jesus followers, as God followers, as Christians, this is as bad as it gets. From here on out, it gets miraculously better and wondrous. On into eternity. That's an internal perspective, right? As tough as it was for Zachariah and Elizabeth, and as tough as it is for us, not to take away anything from that toughness. But God says, you put your hope, you put your, your um, faith in waiting and leaning into me, and you will see that I really am up to something. It might not be the final conclusion of the promise in your lifetime, but something that will give you, the, it's, the, it's that tension that actually lifts us up and then that release that sets us free to go live for Jesus in our lives. And every generation has a remnant, according to the Bible. Every generation who has a remnant of people who say, nope, my life is going to be different by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to, be, I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live with him. I'm going to make him all, my life all about him, as we sang. 
Every generation has that remnant that says, you know, God may be silent, but he's not inactive. In fact, he's busy. And, and, and it says, I may not have heard uh, from God to the, directly to the answer to that prayer, but I've heard from him in terms of his word, and the scriptures. I've heard from him in terms of the assurances he's given to my heart. Yes, so I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to live with that. And, and that means, by the way, the biggest thing that, that, that Christmas is a reminder of is it's a, an ultimate yes to the question of, is God active in my life right now, whether I can feel it in a more tangible way than I'd like or not. And the biggest answer or biggest reminder that Christmas is for your life is your faith is not in vain. <laughs> Just like the song we sing this time of year. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. And a little later the verse says, God is not dead nor does he sleep. That's a fact. And that's the reality that God invites us to grab onto, to experience, to hug into, and to help each other when it's hard to believe for someone else on Christmas. And may that be a part of our life and our Christmas from now on and forevermore. I'm going to ask the band to come out here and just to remind you that you walk among, you live among, you work among people all the time who have no hope. So pray for them. Pray that they'll find this true hope, not just wishing hope. They might use the word, but not real hope. Invite them. Invite them to hear the story. Invite them into the reality. And, and don't be embarrassed and don't be pushed back and don't be, you know, feel silly when it just seems too unbelievable for them. Because God will show up. And God, for anyone who opens himself up to the possibility, will give them the ability to see like they haven't seen before. So I'm going to invite you to pray in the midst of our praying. So let's, let's pray, pray today. And I'm going to invite uh, those of you who are, pray, who are believers or Christians, there's something on your heart that you need to lift up to God and just say, God, help me in the midst of the waiting. Help me in the midst of the hoping. Show me what you want me to know. And, and give that assurance to my heart. Give me the kavah that not just gets me through this moment, but gets me on into the future and gets me closer to you. Just whatever the words are that, that you need to say to him, you say it. And the, the rest of us, if, if you're not a believer, if you're not someone who, who knows him yet, but you'd like to, you'd like to know a God that loves you that much that would send his son to die for you and to live in this world and, and even in the midst of the, the waiting would show up in your life. You can do that. Just it, it, the, the words... Specific words aren't as important. It's what's on your heart. But the words could go something like this. And you can just pray this right now if this is your desire in your mind and in your heart. Lord Jesus, would you come into my life? Would you forgive my sin? I don't even understand all that that means. But I do understand that I need you. Would you come into my life and be my friend for the rest of my life? Give me peace in my relationship with you, with God. And make things new for me. Open my eyes to the reality of this. And then just say, it's in Jesus' name, your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that somebody prayed that prayer today. And I pray that this is the day for many of us that we will see Christmas in a new way, that we will see not just Christmas, not just a celebration, but we see the people in our lives. We see what's going on in a new way. And we won't be as filled with as much anxiety because we've got the kava. 
We've got that hope. We've got that release, that sense of waiting that's not waiting and never seeing. I thank you for this story. I thank you for the wonder of what happened just before you were born and the faithfulness of these people that we can learn from and that we can experience. And one day, maybe we'll get to talk to them ourselves. And Lord, as we wait for you to return, as you have promised to do, may you be so real to us that we never let that go and that our lives become an expression, just like Zachariah and Elizabeth's lives were an expression of what it means to live with you fully in their lives, our lives, regardless of what our circumstances are. And people see you in us. We love you, Jesus. We love you for this time, and I thank you so much for the church I get to be a part of and celebrate this season with. It's in your name we pray. I love you, Jesus. Amen.